millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Marmoneal Property with John Pigeon. Today we have some major topics on hand and we've got an outstanding researcher in the game that's going to answer those listener questions. So that's awesome. Thank you for that. But we're talking fixed rate cliff. Is it here? Is it not? Is it even a cliff? The best markets to invest in and the type of assets, um, interest rates, where are they headed? What's the unemployment doing? We're talking about population, infrastructure, economy, the big pie. What's that all about? So it's my pleasure to introduce the head of a research in CoreLogic Asia-Pacific, Tim Lawless. He's one of Australia's leading property market analysts and commentators. I'm keen to deep dive into all these questions and topics. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so let's uh, maybe go back to your story for a start, Tim. Um, you've been around the industry quite a long time. You've, you've spent some time at Collier's, PRD. I think you're at CoreLogic and then you've wheeled back around to be sort of head of research there now. But uh, wh- where did you first start out? And I suppose what interests you to get into into the property side of things? Yeah, great question. And thanks um, for, for asking a bit about my background. So I never intended to be a property analyst, that's for sure. Um, coming out of uni, I started working for a business called Market Share in Brisbane, which was a marketing consultancy, uh, which is still around, run by a guy named John Lyons. And ultimately, that business was was acquired by RP Data back then, back when it was still a privately owned company uh, owned by the founder, Ray Catlin. And, uh, and that really set me on, I guess, the path of doing a lot more property-based um, research. Initially, a lot more... Uh, you know, um, geospatial style uh, of activities, working with maps, doing a lot of retail catchment area studies and stuff like that. But um, it was residential that really caught my eye and uh, kept me interested. And I moved from RP Data to PRD Nationwide that had a real research um, focus. It still does, of course. PRD, if anyone didn't know, is is property research and development. Um, So it's always had a research focus. And then I started working at Collier's. I ran their research team for a long time. And then I came back to RP Data when we floated on the Australian Stock Exchange. And uh, ultimately, RP Data became CoreLogic when we were acquired by a US business. So all up, I've been um, sort of researching property markets for a little bit more than 20 years now. And uh, yeah, probably the, the, the main constant through that time has been change, especially in the way we measure property prices and, and housing values, which has become a lot more sophisticated just as computing power has improved. Yeah, I started investing personally about 25 years ago. So I could have uh, used your hand way back when with the research because it, it's, uh, it's come a long way, hasn't it? Like uh, I, I talk about it often, the fact that we've got a, we had a property magazine. I think we'd, we'd look in uh, on a monthly basis. We didn't have the internet. Like um, but back then, it must have been hard to actually find some data to research the residential property space. Well, I've always been drinking from the fountain of data, which has been great. So, I mean, at RP Data, I mean, it's it's the source. It's uh, we've always had a lot of data here. So, it's 
I guess um, in many ways, it's really come back to not necessarily having the data. It's really been having the, the methodologies, um, the computing power. If you think about how we measure housing prices now compared to, say, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, your standard was just a, a median price. You know, your 50th percentile um, observed transaction uh, price over a period of time in a, in a different geography. So, now we're using really sophisticated regression techniques that value property uh, rather than try to just look at what's being transacted. So yeah, there's been a real evolution in the way we, we measure housing uh, market activity. And uh, of course, the data is always improving as well. Like, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine 20 years ago that we'd have access to every listing in the country, for mm. example, and the marketing history of every property or um evaluation estimate for every property and how that's changed over time. It's, uh, yeah, it is quite remarkable, you know, just big computing, faster computer times, larger storage capacities, and just uh, advanced um, uh, methodologies has really changed the game. Certainly has. Uh, I, I want to deep dive into what we call PI, population infrastructure and economy. And, and I know you spend a lot of time in this space and and, and just for, for a lot of people researching property, we, we look um, potentially at populate, population growth, growth of an area. Is it growing? Is it, uh, is it uh, stagnating? Um, what's the infrastructure um, improvements? Is the government spending money in that area? How diverse is the economy? Like as a, as a property investor listening, how much importance do they put on these macro indicators as opposed to the micro indicators w- within the suburb or the town itself? Well, it's really important you're, you're aware of both. I think um, the macro trends are very important to understand you know, the broader the broader trends of the marketplace that tend to influence influence the micro trends. So say, for example, if you're looking at a market, um, a capital city as a really broad area that's, uh, that's experiencing rapid population growth and is forecast to rise in, in population over the next uh, five or 10 years, that may not be the case at the suburb level. Think about a really established market. Um, I'll use Sydney as an example. You know, Sydney's going through a population boom, mostly through net overseas migration. But if you go to a suburb like, um, I don't know, Vaucluse or Bellevue Hill or somewhere around the northern beaches, you'll probably find the population's not changing very much at all because they're really established. There's not a great deal of densification happening in a lot of those areas. They tend to be really, you know, expensive, high-performing markets, but they're not seeing much population growth. But demand to buy into those areas is always going to be high because it's quite aspirational. So that's just a good example of where the macro trends are really important and it tends to drive the micro trends a bit you won't find population growth being a driver in a lot of those um, really expensive markets just simply because they're pretty full. They've been around for a long time. There's not a great deal of infill opportunities. And quite often the zoning of the town plan just prohibits or prevents densification, rightly or wrongly. And there's that nimbyism going on, isn't there? It's like, well, it's it's tightly held. The demand is is massively high, but the supply is just so tight. Um, but, but on the contrary, can we see... Uh, Population growth in a certain area that's that's regentrifying or, or is newer, uh, but also see high supply and and that can put that population growth um, estimate out of kilter. Yeah, absolutely. A few good examples there might be uh, Melbourne's Docklands. You know, that's that's massively changing over the last twenty years, uh, really densifying. Or go to somewhere like Brisbane's Fortitude Valley or New Farm, gone through a very similar urban renewal and gentrification process. 
Uh, and areas like these, you know, they, they can be great investments, but also they tend to have a lot of new high density supply coming in, which can make your investments a little bit more volatile or, you know, supply levels can go uh, up quite sharply, which um, can uh, can flood the marketplace and impact on your, your medium to long term capital gains. So, yeah, there are definitely markets where you can see the supply situation is hard to predict what it's going to, uh, to look like, say, five or 10 years from now. But overall, if you're looking at something in some of those markets where they are evolving or gentrifying or going through an urban renewal and you um, targeting, say, established stock in those markets where you know the build cost or the replacement cost just doesn't compare at all to the established price of a home, then it's generally going to be a pretty good investment option, um, especially at the moment when you consider how high construction costs are and uh, the lack of new supply coming into the market. Mm. There's so many indicators that we look at when we're, we're talking about buying in a suburb that's going to be prime for growth, for example. Like we're an investor, we're out there, we want, it's our first shot at it and we want to buy in the best possible region with the best possible asset. Um, very tough question, but w- is the one indicator that you would look at first and foremost over all the others? Like we talk about unemployment and vacancy rates and median house prices and how much money I've got to spend and the yield we need on our own investment strategy. Like is, is the one indicator you look at uh, always as a, as, a, as a starting point? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. To be honest, like I'm not. To be to be honest, I'm not an avid property investor. Um, you know, I've had a few investments over time, but uh, I definitely wouldn't classify myself as an avid investor. But um, I think it's really important to look at the whole gambit of indicators. Mm-hmm. Personally, when I have invested in property, I've generally um, been targeting areas that are. Um, you know, hard to bring more supply into that are quite close to to major transport infrastructure that are commutable, that are really well serviced by amenity. That I know there's always going to be rental demand. Obviously, you don't want to buy into a marketplace where you're paying over and above what you think is fair value. You want to get a decent rental yield as well. Um, but yeah, I think I've generally tried to buy into areas where I'd personally like to live myself. And uh, you know, sometimes. Um, you know, that can be price prohibitive for a lot of people. So that's that's one one option or one consideration. But yeah, I think as long as you have strong rental demand and you're paying at market value or below and uh, the area is really well serviced by all those things I mentioned, you're generally going to see uh, at least a medium to long-term uh, run of capital gain. Mm, interesting. Interest rates at 6%, give or take. They've come a long way from uh, 18 months ago. Uh, inflation is starting to come down, unemployment still relatively low. Uh, have we been here before? Have you seen these trends? And, and if, if so, what happens out the back of this? Yeah, so mortgage rates, yeah, about 6%. Cash rates uh, looks like it's probably on hold now, which is good. Uh, uh, even starting to see more economists predicting a, um, a cash rate cut the second, sorry, the first half of next year rather than the second half, thanks to inflation coming down pretty quickly. But yeah, there are periods where we've seen something similar. Um, probably the best example to find a housing market where housing prices were rising amid rising or high interest rates would be go back to, say, um, 2006 through to 2007, particularly in markets like Southeast Queensland and WA, not as much as in Sydney. So remember, that was also a time when net overseas migration was absolutely booming into Australia. The economy was pretty strong. Interest rates have been rising since about 2003, yet we're moving through a pretty strong phase in housing markets that got 
interrupted by the global financial crisis, of course. Uh, um, and then after that, you know, after all the, the stimulus came through from the GFC, we, we saw another pretty decent rebound in housing prices. So I wouldn't say this period is unprecedented, but yeah, it's really rare to see, you know, a positive inflection in housing prices like what we're seeing at the moment when interest rates are relatively high against a backdrop of heavily indebted households, that's for sure. But also when sentiment is as low as what it is, we're still seeing consumer sentiment holding around where it was in the early phase of the pandemic, where it was in the GFC, except back in those times, uh, sentiment kind of held at this level and then rebounded really quickly on the back of a bunch of uh, you know stimulus or fiscal policy support. At the moment, it's just holding there. It's been there for the last twelve months at these really you know, pessimistic levels. And the unfortunate reality for housing markets is when sentiment is this is this low, you generally don't see a lot of purchasing activity simply because. Most buyers need to have some confidence in their financial outlook, in their ability to hold a job. Um, high commitment decisions like buying or selling a home generally rely on at least an average level of confidence, which we're not seeing at the moment. So in many ways, this is quite a thinly traded upswing. Uh, property um, transactional activity is about at average levels. Uh, but the reason we're seeing upwards pressure on prices simply comes back to supply levels being as low as what they are. So is there any correlation with, with that but now coming into spring when usually, or in spring, but usually spring is the, is the busiest time or busier time of the year for, for trading real estate? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing uh, you know the, the typical spring ramp up in listings is well underway now. In fact, it started through winter. Again, that's really unusual. So uh, typically winter would see new list, the flow of new listings holding fairly flat, if not falling. This winter, we actually saw listings starting to rise through the second half of the season and gathering momentum into spring. So I think there's a few reasons for that. One of them is simply that uh, it follows a long period where sellers were, were quite inactive. It was pretty much since September last year that the trend in new listings was trending at below average levels and it held at below average levels up until just recently. So I think there's been an accumulation of probably um, people who've been thinking about selling but haven't really uh, wanted to test the market. But now the prices are rising and uh, selling conditions still seem pretty good. We're definitely seeing more stock coming into the market. And that's also lined up with a little bit of a loss of momentum in price growth as well, especially in markets where we're seeing total stock levels are rising. Sydney and Melbourne, really good examples of that where you know, Sydney back in May, we were seeing housing prices rising at about 1.8% month on month. That's now reduced back to about half of that, about 0.9 to 1%. Markets like Canberra, Hobart, definitely seeing stock levels in those markets now above average. And those are the two markets where we haven't seen prices really doing anything over the past uh, three or four months either. So a listener question, Daniel said, crystal ball, we, will we see the same returns the last 20 years have given us in the next 20 years? Now, I suppose to, to give you some time to think about that, We've got a massive housing shortage around the country and we're just not building enough uh, property at, at, at the rate that we need because, as you mentioned, with um, migration and people living longer, et cetera. However, we've got suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne that the median house price is three, four, five million dollars. Like, do we see them being worth eight to ten million dollars in the next 10 to 20 years? Like, where's the happy medium? Yeah, I mean, no one knows what's, what's going to happen two years from now, let alone 20, to be honest. Mm. So uh, long-term forecasts are notoriously uh, challenging, uh, to be polite. But um, uh, let me have a go. So 
Let me first of all just dispel a bit of a myth. So the last 20 years, yeah, we've generally seen average price growth growth across most cities. It's been around sort of five, five and a half percent per annum compounding, right? So that myth of you know property values doubling every 10 years, sure, it definitely happens in in some some precincts and regions, but across the board, it's it's kind of rare. Mm. And then you've also got the law of diminishing returns, right? So once you start to get really high numbers, to see them doubling every 10 years or 15 years, whatever you might think, um, it becomes a lot harder as well. So um, to go back to the question, again, oh, actually, let me just put a bit more context here. The last 20 years, that takes us back to what, August of or September of our 2003. So we're kind of coming into a period at the base where we'd been through a significant phase of growth back in the early 2000s. So if you went back 25 years, the annual rate of growth would be a lot higher because you include that period from 2000 to 2003 that was extraordinarily strong. But over a 20-year period, you're kind of cutting off that really strong growth phase. So um, that's probably why that the average growth rates are a little bit lower than what people might expect. So the next 20 years, um, I think will be quite different, to be honest. So you're not going to have the same, or well, I expect you won't have the same uh, um, consistency of falling interest rates, for starters. You know, mm. even though interest rates are back to where they were in 2012, at least on a cash rate, um, they're not going to get back to 0.1% like what we saw through the pandemic. Um, they might get back to, say, a 10-year average or something like that. But we probably won't see that same you know, ongoing drop in in uh, in interest rates. Household level, uh, household debt levels are also really high. So um, I think to see the same level of growth, we'd probably need to see debt levels coming down a bit before uh, we start to see households once again re-leveraging as well. I, I just think we'll, we'll see some impediments for uh, borrowing activity to, uh, to be as strong as what it was over the past 20 years, simply because lenders are really cautious around high debt to income ratios. Um, and generally, uh, your tender to 20% deposit as well has become a bit harder. Affordability is still quite stretched as well. I was just looking at our June data for uh, things like um, dwelling value to income ratios or how long it takes to save for a deposit. Markets like Sydney are still seeing a dwelling value to income ratio that's up at like nine times. And uh, to save a, a 20% deposit, you're looking at about 12 years if you can save 15% of your income. So for all those reasons, I think the next 20 years will probably be probably not quite as strong as what we saw the last 20 years. And for property investors, it means you're going to have to become a lot smarter about where you're, you're, you're channeling your capital. You'll have to um, make more, much more strategic decisions rather than just riding a, a broader wave of capital gain would be my, my guess. Okay. I want to expand on that statement after the break uh, in much more detail for our listeners. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right. So talk to us about that, Tim. You, you mentioned that uh, investors need to be much more strategic in their thinking and, and not just buy a property in the hope that it'll double in value every 10 to 12 years. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean think about your own personal situation more? Do you think about the yields that are coming? Do you look at vacancy rates? Uh, do we look at your own personal debt levels or all of the above? Yeah, all of the above, and we, we talked a little bit about this earlier in the podcast, that uh, you know, trying to maximise your capital growth generally comes down to location, looking for areas that, um, yeah, maybe undervalued, but, but also areas that are really well serviced by either existing amenity or planned amenity. Um, you know, planned amenity is always a little bit speculative, but um, can, can be a really strong driver of growth. Well, not just amenity, but also, say, transport infrastructure is another good example of that. So I think trying to find areas that are going to be always in high demand and maybe have some uh, inherent supply constraints would generally be where you'd, you'd be trying to strategically locate for a, a strong investment return. There's always going to be investors that look for, uh, say, yield rather than, than capital growth. It seems most Australian investors are very aligned with maximizing their opportunities for, for long-term capital gains, which is fair enough. But I think also for yield-driven investors, you know, there may be some opportunities around, say, the medium to high density sector. That's always been higher yielding, at least on gross yields. And it does seem we're moving into this period where uh, supply in the medium to high density sector is going to be quite constrained. Uh, so potentially that's a, a short to medium term um, opportunity is, is trying to get into the marketplace at a time when we know there's going to be this burgeoning undersupply as well. Yeah, well, that's, um, it leads me to this question from Melanie. She says the future of price value for middle ring townhouses, will they go up as people are priced out of entry level homes? And, and, and before you answer that, like we get so many inquiries from people in Sydney and Melbourne saying, well, how do I afford a house in the area or, or the suburb that I like? Um, if I'm growing a family, I, I need three bedrooms. Like how, I can't just go and buy a one-bedroom apartment in that uh, local region. Yeah, I think it's logical that we will see more demand being deflected towards that medium density sector. Uh, you know, townhomes are becoming quite scarce as well. It's uh, If you look at, say, dwelling approvals for that magical missing middle, as a lot of people describe it as, uh, they're generally very low. We're not seeing developers really targeting or focusing on this space, probably because you don't get as much yield as a developer. Um, you know, you're, you're probably trying to maximize the number of dwellings you can put on a, on a lot. There's quite often also town planning constraints that um, uh, prevent that type of dwelling going into an established area as well. But absolutely, John, I agree, more and more people simply aren't going to be able to buy a detached home in a, in a, in a location that they'd like to live or invest in. 
They can probably afford one if you're buying out on the outer fringes where we know supply can be quite uh, high and, and transport times and amenity can be um, long and, and, and low. So, yeah, I think uh, if you can find townhomes that, uh, as you say, have um, a bit of a best of both worlds, give you a bit more space, they might have a courtyard, three bedrooms, um, and that are well located, then, yeah, I think there'll probably be some good opportunities there. And that affordability situation simply isn't getting any better. And uh, mm. again, with this, this burgeoning undersupply and high population growth, you'd have to think that affordability will probably even become more stretched. Yeah. 2032 Olympics, uh, it was announced, I think, two years ago, maybe. Um, any case, as a, as a good lead in to the, the 32 Olympics, and traditionally, housing prices have increased um, in the lead up to the Olympics. Maybe that's because of the time from getting the approval to the actual Olympics um, taking place. But they're, they're only like for, for 12 weeks or, or less of. Uh, of that period of time in that one location. Um, there's a question here to say, how will this affect Brisbane's property market before and after the Olympics? Yeah, it's it's not really about the Olympics. As you say, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an event that, that comes and goes, but um, the biggest impact is going to be the infrastructure investment and the capital investment that goes ahead of the Olympics. So, Southeast Queensland, it's not just Brisbane, so Southeast Queensland um, broadly will be seeing a lot of infrastructure investment, roads, stadiums, um, athletes, villages, all that sort of stuff. That's where the benefit is to uh, well, the community, but also for, for property investors, that's probably where the opportunity is to to target um, purchasing around those uh, those improvements to infrastructure. Um, be it you know buying an apartment around Wollongabba where the main stadium is going to be, or you know buying along the corridor between Brisbane and the Gold Coast or Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast, there's going to be some significant transport upgrades going in both areas. So yeah, I think that's probably the the, the biggest thing. The Olympics themselves, they'll put Brisbane or Southeast Queensland on the map. They'll improve the brand, the image, all that sort of stuff. That's great. But yeah, the, the lasting, um, the, the immediate and lasting benefit is going to be all around that capital investment that tends to drive property prices and uh, and drive employment opportunities as well. So we're basically saying that, that the migration into southeast Queensland is is far superior than anywhere else in in the country. That's what's driving the momentum and and the infrastructure. Sure, there needs to be some some stadium upgrades and, and maybe some roads here and there, but essentially it's the population movement to that area that's that's giving the momentum, not the Olympics. Great, great, uh, great call. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a it's a really um, a blended level of population growth. Look at somewhere like say Sydney or Melbourne completely being driven by net overseas migration, which tends to drive rental demand more so than purchasing demand. Southeast Queensland is booming in interstate migration as well as overseas migration. And uh, that you'll find that the interstate migration trend has a much more immediate flow through to purchasing demand. So Queensland, WA to, to a lesser extent, South Australia are the only, the only states where we're seeing a positive rate of interstate migration. SA is virtually neutral. So it's really a story about Queensland and Western Australia. So let, let's park ourselves in, in Adelaide for a while. You mentioned the the migration is neutral. So one leaves, one comes, and, and that's basically the trend. If there's no population growth as such, how is the property prices continuing to increase? Yeah, well, there is population growth um, from net overseas migration. So remember, you've got three, three components of um, population growth. You've got a natural increase, so that's just mm -hmm. births minus deaths interstate migration and overseas migration. So we're definitely seeing South Australia's population increasing, 
It's below average. It's below the national average from memory. Yeah, hopefully I got the numbers right here. It's about 1.6% per annum growth. I think uh, the national average is about 22 or 2.3% population growth. So Adelaide is you know, pretty attractive for a lot of interstate uh, buyers as well. It's relatively affordable. Interestingly enough, for if you're an Adelaide local buying that housing market, you probably wouldn't describe Adelaide is affordable because incomes, household incomes tend to be quite a bit lower in, uh, in Adelaide compared to the larger cities. So in Adelaide, for example, just looking at, say, dwelling values versus incomes, Adelaide's now got the second highest dwelling value to income ratio, 7.7 times, which is quite high. You know, mm. It's uh, more expensive than Melbourne uh, when you adjust for incomes. But I think the other thing, when you just look at, say, if you're buying from interstates and you just look at, say, the median value of a, um, of a property in Adelaide, it's still relatively affordable. You've got a median house value uh, of 730000 compared to Sydney at nearly $1.4 million. So it's about half, roughly half of what Sydney is. So that's probably the key attractiveness. Um, you know, if you can be on Sydney money and base yourself in Adelaide, for example, it's a, it's a pretty good recipe for wealth. But if you see the the ratio seven to eight times of um, of income, surely that puts a, a stunt on potential growth because people just can't afford. Absolutely, if you're a local, but um, yeah. it's probably if you're on, say, you know, Sydney or Melbourne incomes and you're buying into Adelaide, then it's yeah. probably you're not seeing that same high ratio. Mm. Um, probably the other thing about Adelaide, it's also got the tightest rental market in the country. You're looking at vacancy rates of about 03 to 0.5%. So maybe another opportunity there for investors uh, looking at um, you know, rental yields and so forth. They tend to be a little bit higher in markets like Adelaide and Perth where, where rental markets are so tight. Natasha says, Melbourne, buy now or wait, question mark. Feel like there is nothing on the market and what is is being sold so fast. Feels like Melbourne's been doing that for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I generally, uh, you know, look at Melbourne as a, as a good opportunity. It's uh, one of the fastest rates of population growth from overseas migration. It's undersupplied. There's not a great deal of new development coming into that marketplace either. Um, it hasn't seen as much growth as Sydney um, through the, the latest upswing either, which means it's become a little bit more affordable as well. So, yeah, I think uh, depending on where you're buying, you know, Adelaide is, sorry, Melbourne is still seeing um, quite a bit of greenfield development around the outer fringes. So supply in those outer greenfield markets can be a little bit higher. Mm. Um, but if you look at, uh, we just put out some data this week for the AFR looking at areas where you can, where it's cheaper to buy than rent. Um, Adelaide CBD, for example, was one of the few capital city markets where um, your mortgage repayments are lower than what your rental uh, payments would be. So that's that's another way of looking at a high-yielding market as well. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's some good opportunities around Melbourne. But, um, you know, if, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my probably my pick for uh, for investment locations, I'd still be looking at southeast Queensland, I think, is my number one. And then maybe Perth as, a, as an outsider, just uh, – um, Considering Perth's economy is still a little little bit lacking in depth, it can be a little bit volatile once it gets uh, through, say, um, uh, infrastructure and mining phases. Yeah, and I wanted to to turn to WA because it's an interesting market, and and like it's it's pretty hot at the moment, isn't it? Not not out yeah. of the sky, but days on markets are extremely low, and and it has been or it is an affordable price point for a capital city. Uh, but you mentioned there about the volatility of the the market due to mining and in the last sort of 20 years we've definitely seen that um, flat phase and and the high and then the low um, through 13 14 I think it was so 
what's happening there now and, and what do you think will happen in the next, say, three to five years? Have we got enough population growth? Have we got enough diverse economy for, for Perth not to just uh, fall through the bottom? Well, at the moment, the market's really strong. In fact, we're seeing listing numbers in Perth that are about 44% below the average uh, for this time of the year, and they're trending lower still, even though the, the trend in new listings is rising. So that tells me there's a pretty healthy rate of absorption mm. of stock in the marketplace. Uh, population growth is strong. It's the strongest economy of any state uh, around the country at the moment. But as you say, you know, it can be volatile. So I just probably issue a word of caution there that we haven't seen uh, WA's economy really broadening. Maybe a little bit more focus on public infrastructure rather than private sector infrastructure over the past uh, 10 years or so. There's a lot of big transport uh, projects going on in WA rather than uh, the mining related. But um, the economy still, you know, lives and breathes uh, iron ore, gas, um, gold. So I think the commodity cycles are going to be quite important for WA going forward. Uh, but at the moment, absolutely, it looks like a pretty good investment option. It's, uh, you know, for the fourth largest capital city, it's got the the lowest uh, buy-in price after Darwin. Mm. So it does look undervalued to me, and it's also the highest yielding market as well. Question for you, property location or property type? Which one do you put more emphasis on? Probably location. Uh, I mean, the type is important as well. Uh, but yeah, I think I've, we, we talked about this earlier as well. I think you know, locations are probably the, the be all and end all. If you can buy mm. into a marketplace that's well serviced by amenity that people want to live in, um, it's always going to be strong rental demand. Uh, then I think that that's going to be a key driver of growth. And whether you can sort of um, buy into a market that's inherently limited in, in supply as well, uh, alongside strong de- ongoing demand. Um, the type, I think, is also important. You know, historically, we've generally seen land appreciating more than, than the dwelling itself, which is why we see house values typically rising more than unit values. Whether or not that persists, at least over the medium term, I'm not too sure. You know, I've talked a bit about this burgeoning undersupply in the medium to high density sector, which I think will support prices. Mm. In, that, uh, in those precincts, but you'd have to think beyond, say, the medium term, beyond, say, the next uh, five to seven years, there will be a supply response and we might find some of those inner city precincts or inner fringe precincts that are uh, really well located for public transport and so forth. There's going to have to be a lot more supply coming into those markets just simply based on policies trying to funnel more supply into those into those areas and leverage the existing investment in, in public transport and private transport infrastructure. So, yeah, overall, definitely location and uh, historically houses have been performing better than units. Um, maybe the sweet spot being townhomes as well uh, going forward, I think, is, is going to be a pretty good investment option. Yeah, it's interesting market, the unit market, isn't it? Like we've, we've just seen 16, 17 in, in maybe Melbourne, Sydney and, and Brisbane, the, the vacancy rates are extremely high and then it started to come down and, and they're extremely low at the minute. So it's like, well, it's an obvious choice now. Okay, vacancy rates are low, affordability's there. Let's let's go and buy a, a one-bedroom, a two-bedroom unit in one of those city locations. But what we don't see on the surface is, how many developers are sitting on blocks of land that they bought 10 years ago waiting for uh, the building sentiment to pick up and and then put these out of the ground all at the same time in the next five years? Yeah, and that's always the wild card. You know, if you look at um, the way banks, for example, assess risk in the apartment sector, it's over, say, the lifetime of a loan, so 25 to 30 years. 
and they're still quite cautious about lending to off the plan um, uh, development simply because of that that risk of supply coming into the marketplace. Mm. So yeah, it can be pretty lumpy and. Uh, I think um, you know, the next few years, it is going to be undersupplied, but who knows after that? There's still quite a few impediments to getting more supply into the market, being you know, construction costs aren't rising anywhere near as quickly anymore, but they're not going backwards. Still pretty expensive to deliver new stocks to the market. The labor force is really tight. Um, lenders are still pretty cautious in lending to builders as well. So there's a whole bunch of things still you know, to, to, to get across, uh, to, to get more supply into the market. But if you look at uh, the supply policy environment, it's really clear. It's going to have to turn at some stage. There's more funding coming through. There's um, some incentives for builder rent around depreciation benefits and withholding tax benefits. Um, you know, the, the Housing Australia Futures funds will be starting to see more social and affordable community housing coming online as well. So that's not, not immediate, but it's definitely going to start flowing through uh, um, given some time. We've talked about maybe some some good markets to invest in. You mentioned Southeast Queensland, and, and when we say invest, like buying our owner occupier is still an investment, right? We still have a, a an idea of uh, creating wealth out of that as well. What what markets would you say? Look, I'm probably not too confident on those in the next sort of three to five years because of supply or just lack of population or, or governments not spending any money there? Are there any particular regions or, or types of assets that you, are no-goes for you? Yeah, I'm a little bit cautious about Sydney, to be honest, just because it is so stretched affordability-wise. Um, even though we're seeing prices there have really led this recent recovery, they're up uh, nearly 9% since they bottomed out back in, in, in January of this year. Um, I just see affordability being a major blocker in that marketplace to getting more buyers back into the market. And even even this this nearly 9% gain we've seen is on pretty thin volume. We're still seeing the number of home sales below average across that market. It's really just been a supply side situation that's pushing prices higher. So Sydney, I'm a bit cautious of just because of the affordability environment. Maybe that will uh, create some opportunities in that sort of medium to high density space that we talked about. Um, some of the regional markets that went through an absolute boom through the pandemic, um, they, they've generally held relatively low. So think about areas outside of Melbourne, for example, Ballarat um, would be a good example, or Geelong. We're definitely seeing prices stabilising in those markets, but not as much evidence of any price growth. Again, I think that comes back to probably overshooting the mark a little bit through the pandemic and uh, it's really eroded the affordability advantage a lot of these um, regional markets have. But on the other hand, look at somewhere like the Gold Coast, which is is a very strong market. And again, that probably comes back to the interstate migration flow that's really supporting price growth in that area. Darwin's probably another area where it looks really good on paper. It's got the highest yield of, of any capital city. Um, uh, your typical yield in, in Darwin's about 6.6% gross. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. But again, it's like Perth, but on steroids. It's uh, volatile. It's driven by uh, commodity cycles and infrastructure investment. Um, it can be quite uh, quite hairy. But uh, yeah, it's cheap. It's really high yielding, but uh, tends to be really, really risky. Mm, interesting. Well, for, for the Sydney people that are reaching out all the time saying, I can't afford to buy in Sydney, that's maybe music to their ears. Uh, what you've said today, Tim, is the fact that Sydney might not be growing at the, at the rate that it has been in the past, which gives every first home buyer a, a bit of a fighting chance, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think more and more people who are residing in Sydney will be stuck in the rental market, but they might be considering, you know, the, the whole rent investment uh, strategy, I think, makes a lot of sense for, for Sydney-siders, investing outside of that market. 
um, continuing to rent, but just making sure you do have an investment strategy in place. Uh, um, but other cities seem to offer up better value for money to me and probably better uh, investment returns as well. Yeah, great. Sort of coming towards the end here, it's been a, a fascinating conversation with you. It's an absolute wealth of knowledge. As you said, you're drinking from the property analytics fountain, which I, which I love. One last question, top three items to consider when looking for a property. And I know we touched upon this early, but have you got three things that you'd consider, e- either investment or principal place, doesn't matter. Uh, what, what would you look for personally? Yeah, nice one. So, um, you know, personally, we've made most of our wealth uh, through our principal place of residences, you know, buying in areas that um, we'd we love to live in um, and really uh, you know, stretching ourselves to get into those markets. So I think that's probably the number one thing is um, buying to an area where people want to be. You mm. know, it's um, uh, generally that's where you're going to see some longevity of demand. Uh, the second one would be, uh, you know, price, value for money, um, trying to avoid areas that may have... Uh, already seen a significant rise in value and they're unaffordable. Typically, that would have driven their yield to extraordinarily low levels as well. So even though I wouldn't typically look at a yield as a a major investment um, consideration, I think seeing a yield, a gross yield that might be around 3 or 2% is a bit of an alarm bell that uh, it might be overvalued, at least relative to Sydney. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Sydney's got a gross yield of 3.1% across the board. I mean, it's extraordinarily low. Um, and then maybe the final thing is just looking at uh, the, the level of amenity in the area. I think that's that's critical. You know, schools, healthcare, shopping facilities, transport options are absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, if you're buying into an area that's uh, that's cheap, it's probably cheap for a reason because it is hard to get in and out of. It'll take you a long time to get anywhere. Uh, there's not a lot of options for, for lifestyle or entertainment or uh, social uh, activities. So, yeah, I think just making sure there's the, an array of amenity that's uh, that's suitable is also critical. Yeah, fantastic. And, and finally, one bit of advice for someone out there listening that's uh, maybe not deflated, but the cost of living's increased. They're not saving the amount that they'd like. They want to get on this this property journey sooner rather than later. We're we're impatient as as human beings. Uh, what what's one bit of advice? Is it is it go and get a second job? Is it is it cut out cut out those dinners? Like what what would you do if you were starting over again in your twenties? Yeah, absolutely. They'd be trying to to buy my principal place of residence as early as I possibly could, and that's definitely the advice I, I give my kids. But, but in doing so, I think you need to be quite careful in overextending yourself. This definitely isn't the sort of uh, time where you want to be, uh, you know, in, in a critical level of debt that uh, leaves you in a precarious position. It's just going to wear on your uh, on your your emotionals, uh, emo- your, your stress levels, something that we none of us need. So, um, yeah, I think uh, budget hard, scrimp and save where you possibly can. You know, uh, I had a listen to a really good um podcast or maybe something on TikTok or something crazy like that, uh, just talking about how, you know, a daily coffee and, uh, you know, eating eating lunch, if you're, if you're working in the city, buying your lunch every, every day rather than, you know, taking your lunch in a, in a brown paper bag, you know, the, the savings you can make in a year is just extraordinary. So scrimping and saving, really trying your best to, to save up your money. Um, it, it involves a lot of sacrifice, absolutely. But uh, it means you'll probably get to get into that um, your first home or your investment property sooner. Yeah, great advice. Death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? The, the coffee each day. Tim Lawless, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate you taking the time to, to come and chat with us today. Um, thanks for all our listeners for putting through their questions. Uh, if you like what you listen to today, 
go and give us a, a good old rating. That always helps with what we can provide for you and get uh, expert guests like Tim on the show. So um, thanks again, Tim. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, John. Thanks for the invitation. Until next time, enjoy. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily, and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 